for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us, there is Liberation Martial Arts Online. Thanks to Peter, Justin Davis, and Egypt Scholar 69 for signing up. If you want to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can also find uncut versions of our shows along with Fighters Brew and SDS9 on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was sponsored by Chad Loader, SH, M. Shelton, Berkshire's People's Gym, and New Guy. Jason and I are back to talk about UFC 285. We had the return of John Jones this time at heavyweight to take on Surreal Gone for the heavyweight title, vacated by lineal champion Francis Ngannou. Then the women's flyweight title fight between Valentina Shevchenko versus Alexa Grasso. We also had rising welterweight contender Shavkat Rachmanov versus Jeff Neal and the UFC debut for Bo Nickel. Jason, let's first talk about Jones versus Gone and the contrast between this fight and the previous main event at UFC 284 between Islam Mahachev versus Alexander Volkanovsky. As far as skills, how good or bad is heavyweight? <laughs> um, without sounding like a hater or like overtly shitting on professional athletes, especially those who choose fighting as their athletic endeavor of choice it's it's not good and there, there used to be this thing in at least when i wa- watched a lot of amateur wrestling as a coach and amateur wrestling growing up competing that the, the opposite ends of this the talent spectrum from like your smallest to your biggest like everything in the middle like i started my my freshman year wrestling 145 pounds it's a lot of juniors and seniors and there's a lot of individuals who weighed that much. So there was a deeper talent pool. Um, it's not that way whenever you look at the 100, like 103, 107 pounders, te- typically in terms of depth, but those who stand out tend to stand out. Same thing with the heavier weights. Those when you have sort of that high caliber athlete in a relatively shallow uh, talent pool, just because the numbers just aren't there at each end of the spectrum, um, there tends to be a bit of a, uh, of a dip past your top two or top three. And you're seeing, especially in a sport, in MMA, 125-pound uh, fighters in the men's division are exceptional because they're, they're fast and they, they tend to have like, great athleticism without the ability to transition into other professional sporting endeavors because they just don't necessarily have the size. Now, juxtapose that with professional heavyweight mixed martial arts anyone who is a prime time marquee athlete is probably doing a ball sport or or another sport where they're getting paid um seven figures minimum not to to take a fucking beating day in and day out training not that football isn't hard and isn't brutal on the body but you're not getting kicked in the head for practice at least <laughs> and the seasons are shorter. The seasons are shorter and you're making more money than most of these heavyweights are making if you were just on the fucking practice squad and never even suited up for a game. Those are the facts. And I think I saw a tweet from from you, Sam, where you said, look, there's there's a talent gap here because great big athletes that are super, super athletic and super big are doing sports where they're getting paid real money. And let's be honest, except for a very few, those in the UFC aren't making that kind of money. So there is um, there's a, a real lack of talent in the heavyweight division. Now, the fight basically had one sequence. Gone throwing a naked left straight, then Jones tying up for a body lock. Then somehow Gone ended up trapping his own arm, getting taken down and getting finished. His wrestling was so bad, it looked like a dive, except this is heavyweight. So yeah, the wrestling is this bad. Jason, for students of MMA, can you tell us everything Gon did 
right or wrong in that wrestling sequence that led to the finish? Well, there wasn't a whole lot to really break down, but from, from uh, what did happen, I can tell you, like he threw that left hand, but he also walked, like walked in his left foot, right, and and gave up position hip to hip, where all all Jones did was have to slip outside and come down the the arm and make up that distance against gone and then just fell right into a body lock like from the from the rear position and gone didn't look like he had any look like he had any idea of what to do and it it look there's some things in wrestling that you can't quite see all the time like whenever jones took took his back and locked around his body he sort of stepped and there's a little bit of a knee hip pinch and, and you can drag someone down a little bit easier and it, it is wrestling it's just not gone falling it's an understanding just uh an innate understanding of so what someone like jones of jones's caliber of wrestling just sort of innately knows where to put his hips but at the same time there is uh an innate lack of understanding of wrestling positioning from gone that was obvious and even when he fell and he, he posted he just left that hand posted. There wasn't like a quick snap, back smack stand up or arm clear stand up or control or wrist and immediately start to walk his hips out. He just sort of looked like looked like a kid crawling and didn't really understand that positioning at all. And John Jones is an excellent wrestler and he sh- he's shown that time and time again. And he had the length and the the physicality to to immediately start to to incorporate some some wrestling in it, which is an area where gone is just fundamentally weak. That punch you were talking about reminds me of what Alexander Volkanovsky does, where he punches and then steps forward so that they could be standing parallel so that he could get the clinch, right? Because clinch is what he wants. But clinch isn't what gone wants. So why is he doing a punch to clinch entry, right? To your point. So it's almost like a freebie. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I don't want to like shit on that or like pretend I know what his camp is thinking, but I just know it didn't look like they were enacting any real game plan against a guy who was going to wrestle you the first chance he could, right? So why, why, why that punch to clinch sequence or, or footwork stance switch maneuver when it leads you right into your opponent's wheelhouse? I just, I just didn't get it. And the sequence with the body lock, it looked so weird to me. I mean, yeah, I knew Jones would have the wrestling advantage, but it just looked fake, right? But it's not fake. The reason why it looks fake is because it was a sequence that you don't normally see in MMA, at least in the lower divisions, which was like Jones had a body lock. And then Gone tries to do the right thing, right? Like he tries to reach for the hand. And then Jones just lets go of him. So now he doesn't even have the body lock. Jones lets go. And instead of escaping or turning around or overhooking or whatever, you see Gon's hand still reaching for Jones's hand, even though it's no longer around his waist, right? So he's now reaching behind him. I shared that photo online, why it looks so weird. It looks like Gon had Jones's wrist and Jones broke away, but that's not what happened. As Jones's hands were moving away from Gon's body, like releasing him, Gon kept reaching behind him, looking for that hand. And it's like, if it's not on your waist, forget about that hand. You don't need to grab wrist control. So he kept going for it. And then again, it's a freebie. So Jones just grabbed over his hand, trapping that side and then sagged, dragged him down to your point. Then gone, try to get up on all fours to get back up. Um, eventually, they worked their way to the cage. And again, that guillotine didn't look like a guillotine, even to the trained eye of Daniel Cormier because of the way gone was defending, right? It didn't look like a guillotine. It didn't look deep because gone's hands were not hand fighting the choke. One was posted on the ground. The other one was like trapped. Yeah. Like it was an arm and guillotine, but you could use that also to try to fight or press down on the grip, come around, use both hands to fight the grip. But instead he just sat there. Yeah, he did. <laughs> doing nothing with his hands until a tap. So that's why DC was so confused. And then we saw in the replay, yes, it was legit deep, but also gone wasn't doing anything. He was just like 
just frozen. He was just limp with his hands all in the wrong positions. Just until until a great uh, wrestling guillotine type guy in John Jones, who has a, one of the, the coolest guillotine finishes of all time, and that elbow to elbow pinch down guillotine against uh, Leo Machida, um, it just seemed like Gone was simultaneously lost and a step behind. And I understand that great wrestling hips will make you feel just a little bit off balance. But holy fuck, man, this is really beginner stuff. And if, you are, it, right? if you're not hitting, uh, it, it's bad that there would be this kind of wrestling gap, wrestling hole in any, in any world champion's toolbox, right? It's, it's concerning. It's, it's, part, it's mixed martial arts. And Gon is, is a, a fantastic athlete. And he, he, it seems to have an outstanding learning curve for fight sports. But it didn't seem like there was any true like – he wasn't fighting wrists and, and bumping his hips away. And he didn't seem to have for such a, a – a, he looks like a goddamn ballerina when he's striking sometimes. So you would just think, think that maybe some of this balance would be innate because he can hit spinning techniques. He can hit – like he's got good kicks, high and low. He's smooth and he has good balance. And to think that that – I wonder how much wrestling they even thought they were they – were, they needed to train how much did they train if you told me he would have trained eight weeks in wrestling i'd tell you that he maybe trained two because it didn't <laughs> look like eight, eight weeks worth of fuck all really it was really that that strange because nothing looked from such a naturally gifted fighter nothing looked natural once once jones got to his hips and then f- fighting hands like, even if you don't know what you're doing in, in jiu-jitsu you know it's not good for someone's for your throat to be getting like <laughs> fucking ruined by someone else's choke that's coming across. You you want to fight those hands. There should be some sort of instinct, and all of it just looked looked a little bit odd. And it was probably one of the the for me it was one of the least entertaining MMA fights at the highest level with a three year coming off three years. There's a lot of hype. At least I thought it could have been an outstanding fight, and it just. It was not, and I I hate guillotine finishes anyway. Unless they're like hail mary, hail mary at the very end. Like I like when someone's getting dominated and just finds it. But it was uh, not even all the the branding and PR propaganda from the UFC could make me think that fight was really worth watching a third time. So I I mean that because I've watched it twice. It's the only thing I'm saying. The thing was, there's a video of Henry Cejudo going over that final sequence with John Jones. And it happened identically. So why didn't Gon's camp study it? Now I realize the heel hook attempt wasn't a fluke. The way Nasruddin Imavov fought Sean Strickland wasn't a fluke. I think Fernand Lopez's camp doesn't game plan well. I guess not. That really seems to be the case. And I'd love to get feedback if we're both wrong on this, but none of it looked like there was any type of prep. None. None at all. Like from just from the wrestling, even even walking that hip in to which puts you lead leg on lead leg, and he just comes down and, and then the back take or the the rear body lock or whatever you want to call it, whatever wrestling sequence you want to call it, how you want to describe it, um, you, you just you're just sort of giving up position. And I wonder if so you can't gloss over some of these skills. Wrestling is something that you need to immerse yourself in. Yes, I know you don't want to ruin a, you ruin a 28, 29, 30, 35-year-old, however old some of these fighters are when they're getting into the, the higher levels of the UFC. But you would think that a, con, a continuation of skill development would mean this wasn't the first camp he tried to work his wrestling, right? <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> right? You really would hope that. So that it would build, build off some sort of foundation and fundamentals and that you could format a camp that would would continually grow that skill set and it didn't appear that and how many times do i say if you're world class you should be doing world class shit or someone else is going to sneak up on you they will gain ground and it just didn't look like that and may, maybe i'm wrong maybe he just froze who knows i just know that like this many fights even in a relatively abridged career for first real gone like 
understanding of hip positioning is fundamental to fighting mixed martial arts. And if you don't do it, you can't expect to, to maintain um, the highest level of performance in this sport. You just can't. <laughs> now, Gon wasn't joking when he said he doesn't watch tape and doesn't train. And he still somehow was in the top two for heavyweight. And the thing is, Jones used to say the same thing, that he doesn't train and he just parties. Imagine anyone at 155 and below saying this, like that could not happen. The depth at 155 and below is so much better. So should we take depth of the division into consideration when thinking about pound for pounds and potential goats? You absolutely should. Well, if you, and you, if you think about what, and this is the, a revi- not a revisionist history, but we're litigating the past a bit, but you have heavyweights that can come in without real well-rounded skill and make a little bit of noise in the heavyweight division. Had gone, gone roughed up Tuvasa, and he looked fantastic in doing it, but he got clipped a lot. And let's be honest, Tuvasa was, if he didn't have a world-class chin, Greg Hardy might have beaten him because he blasted him in that fight. So, I mean, how close are we to saying that Greg Hardy was a legitimate player in this division? And I'm not saying that like, MMA math means that. I'm just saying these are big guys that hit hard. And there's a, a, an obvious skill gap. And if you have athleticism like someone like Brock Lesnar, what is he, three, three or four fights in before he got a UFC title? And yes, MMA has evolved since then, but the UFC heavyweight division has not. And if, if there's that level of wrestling weakness, what's to, what's to keep any NCAA college heavyweight in wrestling and just sort of expect them to get a takedown guillotine choke or a little bit of ground and pound and end up winning, especially since you don't have heavyweights with the same kind of jujitsu chops as uh, Fabricio Verdum, who's still more than capable on his feet. So I think we're just seeing a de-evolution of the heavyweight division and someone like John Jones can come in, who is a very, very skilled fighter, very well-rounded, has the, the height, the, the length, the reach. And now, now he has the size to compete in the heavyweight division, which is abysmal from um, a depth of talent perspective. And even those who are in the top five, there are some glaring holes in their game. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Now talk to us about Valentina Shevchenko versus Alexa Grasso. I liked the fight. I did. I liked what Grasso was doing. I think her stand-up is, is outstanding. I think she's going to continue to improve. I thought Shevchenko was forced to be a, to fight on lead a little bit more and shows some limitations there at times because she's not super comfortable, but she's also good at mixing in, in her wrestling, which when she was using it and it was well-timed, incredibly effective. But it only takes one, you know, one moment and... Alexa Grasso had the presence of mind, regardless whether she was winning the first round or if you thought she she lost the the subsequent rounds. She had the presence of mind to stay in it, and I think she's someone that if you make a mistake with her, she's uh she's composed enough. It didn't matter if she was down one round, three rounds, five rounds. She still figure a way to fucking beat you. And that's that was the opportunity that Shevchenko gave her on that that missed spinning back kick as she gave up her back, even for a moment. And everyone's seen the video now, it's gone around. She wasn't just, uh, she wasn't just her own PR team when she said that we've been working this. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself, we capitalized. She was telling the truth. And that kind of preparation based on fight study is so important. 
And again, I'm tired of the coaching staffs and the fighters. And it has to be hype. But I guess maybe it's not. Those individuals who say, I don't worry about what they're doing. I worry about what I'm doing. Well, I think Alexa Grasso was really concerned about what Valentina Shevchenko might do. And in watching that, she was able to time that. And in timing that, she was able to exploit it, take that back in a millisecond. She took her back and then dropped in boots and went to that choke. Nearly ripped Shevchenko's fucking head off. So that kind of planning, that kind of, you know, you want to grow that proprioceptive neuromuscular junction, that kind of muscle memory so that when you recognize it, you can act on it with immediacy. And that's what she did. Tyler Santos also took Shevchenko's back and held it for a long time. So I think Grasso and potentially every other Valentina Shevchenko future opponent is going to be thinking about finding entries to take the back. And once you do, you're going to keep her there. And I think that's what Aaron Blanchfield has been recently hinting at. She said in interviews that if she fights Valentina Shevchenko, she feels she matches up well because she's already spotted some weaknesses, but she didn't want to go into it, right? But she said it was grappling related. And I think she means getting the back. That Lanchfield is really good at getting the back. And Shevchenko is really bad at defending the back. And she will even give you the back herself. So I think these up and coming fighters and their camps who've been watching Shevchenko for a long time, like Grasso, like Blanchfield, have now realized, and even probably Tyler Santos's camp, have realized there's openings with Shevchenko for taking the back and either keeping her there or finishing her there. Yeah, well, Shevchenko was not outstanding in wrestling off of bad positions and grappling off of bad positions, which tells me she's usually the, the more physical and more talented grappler that she's working with. I mean, that's, that's, my, that's my working theory. You need to get better at improving from bad positions because she doesn't. She just sort of holds it um, and tries to not go, get into a worse position. And as, as the talent level uh, in that division continues to improve, and they continue to see that, then they're going to they're gonna make up some ground. And Alexa Grasso just made up that ground in a moment, and, and she won the world title. Uh, some of these younger fighters that have good wrestling are going to force Shevchenko to start battling back from bad positions. And if she doesn't put herself in like a murderer's row of grappler wrestler fighters, then a lot of these fights are going to be a lot closer than she wants them to be for two reasons. One, she's going to be give, be a little more hesitant because when she is off, at, she's a, a counter fighter anyway. It shows a lack of aggression at times so that she can fight on the counter. And the optics of that aren't, of, of that approach isn't always great. And she could possibly become a little more hesitant whenever she has a strong wrestling threat in front of her when she's not good at, and she's given away a few rounds early and not good at wrestling back out of bad position. I think also this has been an eye-opening moment for a lot of camps where they're like, okay, so you can do that. Where they always thought about that possibility that whenever somebody spins, you can just grab them and take their back. But there's a risk because you have to see it coming. And that's the thing about spinning attacks is it's supposed to catch you by surprise. But there are some fighters who just do it a lot. They just spam spinning shit. And Valentina isn't one of the worst culprits, but she does it. And there's other fighters who spin a lot. So I think when you fight those fighters, you have to now think about getting to their back whenever they're spinning, whether it's a spinning back fist or a spinning back kick. Yeah, and if you're not, if you're not considering wrestling from a missed spinning technique and you're just going to let them reset and go again, they're doing a high-risk, high-reward maneuver, but you're taking the risk component away from them. And how many times you see like fighters just push away from the, that position instead of like initiate a wrestling or a grappling exchange? And this isn't entertainment, it's fighting, right? I know we want to be entertaining, but I tell you what, would you rather see someone get uh, beaten up on the counter or when given an opportunity, possibly down by two rounds, dropping in those, those uh, hooks and almost fully ripping off another human being's fucking head? That, that can be pretty fun to watch too, and it's a component of the sport. And I'll say it again, it is your job in there, especially at the world championship level, it is to win. 
entertain entertainment becomes a byproduct of being so fucking well prepared that there's nothing else that individual can do in front of you you are so prepped you are so ready you are so studied that everything they do seems telegraphed even if it's set up because you've seen it and you've owned it in your head mentally over and over and over and you've gone through it and you've drilled it you've put yourself in situations so that when that situation presents itself fucking go time immediately you react with precision and that 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 timing and awareness because you've been there you've put yourself there you've immersed yourself in that 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 scenario over and over and over you got to fight like that. you got to train like that and i you i think you're starting to see that the better camps are doing that they are exercising strategy not just grit and aggression so that there is a strategic component and a planning component which i think is something that has been missing in the sport for a while since it went in that that de-evolution of fighters fight and they're entertaining well <laughs> it's hard to be entertaining when you're fighting in the fucking b leagues right or in the minor leagues and you no one sees what you're doing so Sometimes a little bit of strategy and fight preparation can go a really long way. And I think for fighters who do like spinning attacks, they have to be more cautious about it. They can't spam it. They have to be smarter about it and they have to set it up and they have to make it make sense. Don't just do it to do it. Don't just do it to score points. Yeah, for sure. And if I'm in a, if you're a, if I'm a right-handed fighter and I have a strong right hand, right? I got a good right hand. You're always trying to stay to my my weak side. So your footwork is always cheating you away from my right hand. A spinning back fist or a spinning uh, back kick will bring that right side attack around from the left side. So seeing where they're going and setting some things up can lead them there rather than just spamming. And that's why you start to see fighters who have, it needs to be a balance of exceptional athleticism and commitment to craft. And that's what like Volk does that as well as anybody, right? He gets better and uh, his, his attacks become more and more layered each, each and every fight. So it's not just about the physicality. It's not just about having a great chin and good cardio. It is can you continue to develop skills so that if the first and second uh, techniques aren't there. Can you layer them? Can you build off of them into bigger and better things based not just on what you want to do, but what on your what your opponent is giving you? Like that's what you need to plan for. And uh, other things like strength, they're great. Sometimes you can't really see that. Some fighters are stronger. I, I allude to this all the time. They're they're stronger than they look, and so you think certain fighters should just do certain things. And they'll make some sort of positional improvements. That's not what I mean. Sometimes you just get in there and, and men or women are just fuck you strong in the octagon. And there's not much you can do about it. At distance and with setups with some of your strikes, um, if you're throwing single punches, if you're throwing naked shots, if you're, I guess if you're, if you're negligent or not aware of, of what your opponent is setting up and you're not layering your own setups, then everything becomes this sort of random bullshit. And if you're able to get away with it because you're athletic or you're more athletic than, than others in the division, eventually that shit will come back to haunt you. And with Shevchenko, you have someone who is both, she's athletic, she's strong, and she knows how to fight. She's a good, she's a good grappler. Um, she's better in the top position. She's a good wrestler. She's got a pretty good body lock. But there is this, I do it this way in spite of what they're, the look that they're giving me. And I think at some point, like there's enough data on her. And with coupled with her hesitancy, you're going to be able to see athletes who have continued to improve in that division catch up on her because like, I'd be I'd be eager to see how she did against against Blanchfield as well. I'm not sure she gets past that given her last two performances against um, some some pretty capable grapplers. I think it's a combination of she's getting older. She's been around for a long time, so everybody has a lot of footage on her. And also she hasn't been the same ever since that knee surgery. Yeah. Especially with her fight style. That could be that could be problematic for sure. 
Now the people's main event and the most technical and exciting fight of the night, Shavkat Rachmanov versus Jeff Neal. Neal came in five pounds heavier, which also means he's more hydrated, which makes a difference in strength, but also how much damage he can take. Jason, talk us through this fight. Well, let's just say this. Uh, Rachmanov fought well, but he's got some defensive lapses, right? He gets hit a lot. He relies on his chin. But goddamn, if he's not one of the most entertaining fighters I've ever seen, I like watching him fight. He is. I mean, even the commentary nails it because he does certain things so well. Like he's got a piston of a right hand. I must have said that two times before the commentator said it. Like he just does shit a certain way that looks cool. Like he hits hard. He just starts moving people with the bylock. And he's not like super chiseled and super jacked. So I just sort of like the way he fights. But at the same time, he loves to keep that, that, that chin up and fighting, fighting tall. And he gets caught with some shots. And Jeff Neal can crack. So Rachmanov has a chin. Um, I root for him a lot, but I, I think when you get some with some of those heavy hitters in the 170 pound division, uh, there's only so many times you can you can rely on that chin as if you're wearing a football helmet while you're fighting. Some defensive responsibility and better defensive reactions at some point are going to be a must. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he doesn't have them because he doesn't need them. And Jason should just fuck off. <laughs> I don't know. But I just know I love watching him fight. I really do. In his previous fights, he barely got hit. And I think this is more of a testament to Jeff Neal in that this is probably the best Jeff Neal has looked ever in the UFC. So I think Rachmanov was tested. But I feel like he also showed us a lot. Yeah. I feel like in this fight, he answered some things that we didn't know yet about him like his chin for instance well it, it, even the the choke that he ended it with he seemed like he sort of just like now that i uh, now that my finishing streak might, <laughs> might be at risk i'm just gonna finish this guy short of like to have knocked him out but i'm just gonna choke him instead right with that little merkel choke that he hit um like that standing rear naked or whatever it was with that merkel leg in and we talk about composure all the time he almost seemed like he could have gone to – He, I think he won the knockout. And Jeff Neal looked great. I thought Jeff Neal really looked fantastic. And he hit some nice shots. Even after he was getting clipped, Jeff Neal put together some counter punches when I think a lesser man would have been like would have, would have been snoozing uh, and waking up to some smelling salts. He was still with it and, and found some good shots on Rockwell. And how frustrating does that have to be? You might feel a little bit dejected after you blast him with a great counter hook, bang, and even a two right behind it, and he eats it, and he puts a straight right hand back in your mush, and all you can do is take four steps back into the cage. You know, it almost looked like there was some big brothering going on because Rockman hoves that dude. You know, he just when he hits you, it fucking hurts. It's stiff and it's straight, and you can crack him three times, and he punches you, and you're like, "Fuck, man, that sucked." I am really, really eager to see him against some some other 170-pounders. I'd love to see him against Gilbert Burns. I mean, speaking of Gilbert Burns, right, there's a lot of comparison between Rachmanov and Hamzat Chimaev. But first of all, Hamzat is no longer a welterweight. He has officially moved to 185. And secondly, they're very different. When Chimaev was tested, he didn't show composure, actually. He would get clipped and just start wading in there really recklessly and start getting clipped some more. Whereas when Rachmanov showed lapses in his defense, he would clinch, he would try to exit, and he wouldn't try to rush the end. He wouldn't start panicking and be like, oh shit, I got to do something right now. I got to get him back. Even when his mouthpiece fell out, Rachmanov was like, whatever, you know? Right? <laughs> this is fine. This is no big deal. Whereas Shemaev, he puts so much pressure on himself. Everything is a big deal for him. And that's the difference. One is cool as a cucumber and one is not. Yeah, well, Rachmanov looked about as comfortable in a fight at times that, weren't, that, at times that were not going his way. Like he was basically swimming down the river of fire, just doing a backstroke and whistling. <laughs> yeah, no, no big deal. No big, not, not, nothing was getting to him. And it's, when someone can be that calm and composed, 
and he never got wild. He never panic wrestled. Like even whenever he did wrestle after he got cracked or he moved back a little bit, he, he would try for something. If it wasn't there, he would position off and hit a nice knee to the body. And those knees, knees, knees to the body were excellent. And they were, like, I, I really like Gilbert Burns and, um, maybe I've got some recency bias in watching, uh, Rachmanov, but I, and I also really love Rachmanov. He's one of my favorite fighters to watch. <laughs> I, I told you, I said, I'm really high on this kid when he was brought to my attention because it's like the things he does, even if he doesn't do them perfectly, always have a thud or a snap to them. And then he's always having some sort of continuation of offense, whether wrestling or knees to the body in those dirty, muddy areas that I really like. But yet at the same time, his shit becomes really entertaining. I don't want to say it gets wild because it doesn't, but it gets aggressive. And with that aggression, there are some lapses or a trade-off in hand position and uh, fundamental defense. But he can take that shot. And from a <laughs> from a consumer perspective, from a fight fan perspective, I love watching him fight. And maybe this is some recency bias, but I think he I think he sleeps Gilbert Burns. I do. And I know Gilbert Burns is a good chin and and can fight. But I think he walks into a piston of a fucking right hand swinging wildly and Rockmanoff puts uh, an exclamation point on uh, uh, a bid for a title shot or at least a top five ranking. And I know I'm circulating like on the matchmaker, like that match is coming down the pipe and it's not. But I'm just saying from the things I've seen, who I would like to see him matched up with, I really like Gilbert Burns. And I really like uh, Rockmanoff. And I think putting them together would be fireworks. Something else that I like seeing in a young fighter is, to your point, Rachmanov's commitment to the body. He keeps attacking you to the body. He never lets you not even take a break, right? To your point about continuation of offense, he doesn't even let you take a breath. You're exchanging upstairs. Maybe you hit him too. And you're like, okay, now this is where we break off and I could take a little breather. And he's like, no, I'm going to hit you in the stomach now. Right. And until you've been in the stomach, you will never truly understand or appreciate how disruptive that shit is. Like, fuck, man, when you can't breathe, when you have to take a second and readjust your inner organs and make sure everything feels okay, right? It is, it is di- disruptive. And we talk about money in the bank and banking those shots for later, and it wears you out. It is disruptive to your breathing. It is disrupt. There's um, vasovagal responses that start to get a little bit out of whack when you start getting cracked in the body. And he wrestles off of it. So if you pinch down, he'll start to put you in a front headlock. Or if you straighten out and try to exit, he'll just blast you with punches too. If you want pizza, he'll fucking force feed you pizza. If you want ice cream, he'll give you ice cream. He's taking whatever is available, right? So that kind of thing, that kind of fighting, I really, really love. And I think the more someone can appreciate the, what do I say? Like when the muddy waters of MMA that can get boring. Right? If you don't know how to elbow from the clinch and start peeling hands and have good hand fighting against the cage, then then th- those situations get boring. But and I, I, you hear me refer to Felder all the time. No one is ever saying Felder fights are boring because someone put him in a, against a cage and all they did was just wall install. Felder is so good against the cage that he'll find elbows, he will find knees. If you drop your head, it was going to knee in the head. If you drop your head... Um, and where you try to try to overly wrestle, he's going to make you pay for it. He's going to wear you out physically. And as you start to tire, he's going to hit you with knees to the body, elbows to the head. If you put your hands up to elbow to the head, he's going to frame off and the knee in the body again. And then when you break off, well, that's where he wanted you this whole time anyway. I think those body shots, the knees, but there were also kicks, punches. I think that all paid off to the ending. I think that's part of how he got the finish because Jeff Neal is tough, but like, you could tell his insides were hurting him towards the end. When Rachmanov was punching him to the head and hitting him to the body, he had to pick. He like picked covering his body because it was killing him, right? And so even when that choke came, his hands were out of position and he was already tired from the body shots. He was winded. And that's why, listeners, you attack the body because it's not about just finishing them right away with a body shot. That would be nice, right? That's like a nice little gift. But often it's, investing for the future. It's investing for rounds three. And if you're fighting a championship fight for rounds three, four, and five. So you really are banking for dividends in the later rounds. And I think that's what Rachmanov was doing from round one. Yeah. 
And I, I like to see him continue to develop a nice, well-rounded attack. You saw uh, Jeff Neal come out with his hand, like good fundamental hand position, right? And so that body was open. They were kicks to the body that were thrown that got underneath that elbow. And then whenever um, like you hurt someone with some kicks in the body, they want to crash distance and they want to keep it. They want to punch their way in and you get into some clinch range. You can continue to throw little spammy short shots that aren't doing anything. Or you can elbow, frame, pivot, underhook, uh, get caught in that clumsy over under position, bump a little bit, pull, get them stepped back and bang, knee that body. Or you can get caught in it, step back, shift your hip and knee right away. And then they start to react. So that kind of stuff to me is real pretty. Yeah, it looks nuanced and you don't always get a knockout out of the deal from those shots, but investing in them can lead to those knockouts. Uh, you can get people real flinchy once that, once those guts start hurting. You can get them real <laughs> fucking flinchy. You could, take a, you could take a fighter that is pretty grizzled. You get a little chaos going in your internal organs. They'll start talking to the brains, hey man. Fuck this. Let's get out of here. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. And I think to your point that you made about defensive lapses, I think it might also be a stylistic thing for Rachmanov, where just like Alexander Volkanovsky, Volkanovsky is really good at defense, but he's shown when he's fighting a southpaw, he does have problems. And I think it might have been more to do with Rachmanov stylistically, like not doing as well against southpaws as he does against other orthodox fighters. And so I know. Rachmanov called out Kobe Covington, and I would actually pick Rachmanov over Covington. And Covington doesn't hit nearly as hard as Jeff Neal, but I think Covington being another southpaw and being another wrestler, I think that could give him some difficulties. But I think that's also a good test where we see if he's figured out how to fight southpaws. So I think this might be more of how some fighters just are. They just don't do well fighting against other stances. And uh, I hope this isn't something that is a feature of Rachmanov and just a temporary thing until he figures it out. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, and that's sort of the fun, right? Because in my head, I've conjured up this this real hype around Rachmanov. At the same time, there's some cognitive dissonance because I see some lapses in his defense. And I wonder, like, I know his wrestling is good, but how would, he, how would it fare against someone like Covington who has the gas tank and legit all-American wrestling chops? So to me, rather than to, to have this sort of biased debate in my head, I get this sort of hunger to see they, these fights play out. And God bless like, the analysts that will put their opinions in writing, because I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Tom in particular, because right? he's right 90% of the time, and the 10 times he's 10% he's not. Everyone loves to point it out. But to, to, to really go in and, and break that stuff down, Matchup wise, there are some. When you look at it from from a coaching perspective or a true uh, analyst perspective, and try to suspend your own internal bias, in my head, I can't stop looking at the fight between someone like he and Covington and saying, "All right, put him in a left-handed stance." I think uh, Rachmanov finds that piston of a right hand and fucking sleeps him. Right? But I know that there's there's so much more to to those fights but that's where it continues to go in my head so there's this, there are some decent fights in the 170 pound division and there are some great fights in the 170 pound division and i think all the great fights are going to entail rachmanov yeah i would definitely put this as an early contender for fight of the year along with islam bahachev versus alexander volkanovsky but you know the year is still young so there's probably going to be other great fights, but so far those are the two fights that stand out for me. Yeah, it, two great fights for completely different reasons, right? Um, one is the, this this technical brilliance 
Um, and another one is just like, how tough and how hard does, does this individual hit and how unflappable is he when he gets hit? You know, the beauty, the beauty of someone like Rachmanov is that great chin and knockout power tend to be pretty fun, right? Dan Henderson was pretty limited in overall, um, in over, I don't want to say overall skill set because he could wrestle and he, he hit really hard. But towards the end of end of his career, when he was older, he was sort of limited in what he would do. But he had a great chin and he could hit really, really hard. Now we have someone Rahmanov who has a great chin, hits really hard, but does other more dynamic shit, right? So it's fun to sort of see that. And I'll always be a huge fan of of the technical aspect of things, but sometimes you just want a fighter who has that fuck you power with that fuck you chin, and just like, you know, especially if you're if you're rocking with that guy and you're, you're like you're ride or die Rachmanov, and he continues to perform, you're like, yep. <laughs> and there's fun. There's a lot of fun from a fan perspective with that, even if there are some defensive lapses. But I think there are some things that he does really high level technically that you don't see a lot with other MMA fighters. After he exchanges, he does these little quarter turns. Actually, the times he was in trouble, he just stood there. But when he wasn't in trouble, he would do these little quarter turn exits where he would exchange and just pivot out. Well, his quarter turn sets up a lot of his right hands too when people try to go in, in, in recorrect position. I love that. And so even his chin positioning, which isn't always greater as his chin and his hand position are built off of his ability to turn and pivot and maintain balance and then pop that right hand or pop whatever, whatever he decides to throw. So like it is a give and take, right? It is a, when I say that he's uh, defensively negligent, I am sure that he, that he is aware of that and that his ability to find those shots are based on how visual he is. And standing tall, standing upright, because uh, he he's one of those guys that believes in his ability to find those shots. It would be different if he was just random with his right hand, but he is pretty precise with it, and he's great at setting it up. So, like part of his working within, we talk about when a fighter is really crazy strong. Well, we we tend to say he's just strong, but whenever they they tend to put together a game plan and build out their skill set around that core competency or that 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 strength in strength it's pretty it's pretty amazing i think he they've also done that with um with Rachmanov's chin like so i i think if you made him more defensively aware it made it like gave him a higher guard uh, then you would take away some of his ability to, to pivot and turn and find shooting underhooks from clinch positions when people try to swing. And so I think it's a style that, and we speak to this like every other episode, I don't think he needs tweaked majorly. I just think he can't stay in that that super tall and give up big, big shots against some heavy, some heavier hitters. But at the, at the same time, maybe he can because he'll find his shot first and they won't be able to handle it. His hand positioning, to your point, reminds me a bit of what Brandon Moreno does, where he kind of like uses it to like find his tempo or whatever, like almost like just pumping it up and down, right? And it's just like, don't do that. Just keep them in position to cover your chin. I guess that's like how he finds his rhythm or whatever. But against really hard hitters and accurate punchers, that can cost him. And it did in this fight. But to your point about the quarter turn, I guess that's why when he... He didn't finish him with him, but that's what caused the whole ending sequence where Jeff Neal was rocked. He caught him with his right, but Jeff Neal in the slow-mo was not in a position to return fire. And it must have been that he just shifted a little bit off angle where he could hit Jeff with his right, but Jeff couldn't hit him back. Right. Little things, little things. And in speaking to to Moreno, Moreno is a 125-er, right? <laughs> they tend not to hit as hard. He's also a 125-er that fights from more of a crouched position. Too. So he's not as upright when jockeying for some of that hand position and some of the things that that, that they do similarly. We're speaking about two athletes that but that both have great chins. But in looking at someone like Rachmanov and trying to determine is his is the strength of his right hand and the in his chin 
something that he believes in to the point where making other adjustments aren't all that necessary for him. My question is, could he and would he if he had to? Because just because he hasn't shown us that doesn't mean he doesn't have it. You know what I mean? If he was having difficult finding that right hand or if he had a guy with fuck you power too and every time he would hit, he'd get cracked back. Let's say he was fighting his clone. Could he make some sort of strategic adjustment in his head position being a little bit better? But also when he does get hit, he, he can wrestle. And if he's not getting takedowns, He's very physically strong. He's putting you against the cage or he's getting you to at least defend the first shot and oftentimes a second follow-up body lock attempt. And when you do that, he starts to knee you in the body, right? So there's strategy born of that. If he gets hit, if there's a vulnerability to getting hit because he has a great right hand, part of his defense is that I will wrestle you against the cage and start kneeing you in the body if you start to open up too much. And he has that. So being a, being a more complete fighter, um, starts to work as part of his defensive consideration i would i would imagine i think i'm always a little bit uh hard on the fighters that i really really like entertainment wise because i i tend to be a little bit of a of a what a little bit of a fight snob at times in terms of those (laughs) fighters who are who are more entertaining than they are technical but i don't i don't mean that for rachmanov at all in this regard i think as is he could beat everybody in welterweight and the reason for that is because he's good, but also welterweight isn't as bad as like middleweight and above, but it's also not like a super deep division either. So it's also an indictment about the rest of the division. Now, when he gets to Leon Edwards, when he gets to Kamaru Usman, he can't fight them as is. He needs to improve by the time he fights those two. Absolutely. Right. Because he's not going to be able to just sort of clinch his way as part of his defense after he gets rocked with a shot, if they're trying to find his, trying to find his power shots, right? That's a terrible idea against, uh, against someone like Usman. Flying up against Leon Edwards, you got to be careful you don't get clipped with that. I mean, he fights pretty tall with his hands low. You got a good kicker in front of you, you got to protect that head. And Leon is another southpaw. Yep. Absolutely. So those are fights that I, I, I truly think if you match any of them up with Rachmanov, it's like you said, this is an early contender for fight of the year. I think that's until the next person puts up a pretty decent fight against Rachmanov. And then that's our next topic <laughs> of conversation. And that becomes the next potential fight of the year. But like I said before, they're almost always going to include this guy just because of the way he fights and what he brings to the table. Now, Bo Nickel made his UFC debut against UFC veteran Jamie Pickett which was an appropriate fight for somebody of his caliber making his UFC debut. What did Nickel show you? Uh, Nickel showed me that he did struggle with the first two takedown attempts until he kneed the poor guy in his fucking nuts, and then he took him down pretty <laughs> easily. <laughs> yeah. That's about all I, could, all I could really point out. He seemed to, to rush and force some of those takedowns. But credit to Pickett, because I know how good of a wrestler Bo Nickel is. Um, and I, I wrestled a little bit in college. And I feel like even uh, forced takedowns from Bo Nickel would probably take down 95% of, of athletes in the UFC. So credit to Pickett for staying up, but then he got he seemed to get jarred in the nuts pretty hard, and then it was all downhill from there. Yeah, it's harder to take anything away from this fight other than Nickel didn't disappoint us, right? Like he didn't end up being worse than we thought, but he didn't show us anything either. Yeah, right. And he did seem to be like a little too wrestling stancy like in his fight stance, which is going to get his head kicked off at some point. But he's three fights in, four fights in now to a, a pro career. And the UFC did a good job in picking uh, a vet, Jamie Pickett, that is competent while, while still being less risk. If that makes sense. You know, he's a, he's a competent fighter, um, but there, there wasn't much risk uh, short of a complete breakdown fundamentally of Bo Nickel. And uh, it, it played out pretty much how I thought it would. So uh, and I've, I've watched some of Bo Nickel's workouts on YouTube and on, on all over the internet. And he's not bad in terms of his development with his hands and, and his kicks. 
pulling that off in a, a fight against the world class guy, a little bit different. So yeah, I think this showed us a little bit. Um, but I tell you, it, at the at the highest level of the sport, forcing takedowns and a little bit too wrestling centric of a stance could get you fucked up. But at the same time, he's only 4-0. And what can we really gauge off of the fight with Pickett? So it's it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's tough to, to really glean all that much at this point. What's fortunate for Bo Nickel is not only his wrestling and that he's young, but also that he's a middleweight. And middleweight is a really bad division, right? And so looking the way he does, and if he was fighting at like bantamweight, uh, I would have some pause. But let me just go over this with you, Jason. Some of the fighters that are ranked above Bo Nickel. And so some of the people he might have to beat on his way to the title. You got Chris Curtis. You got Roman Delize at number nine. You got Sean Strickland, number seven. You got... Drickus Duplessis at number six. You got Jared Cannonier at number three. He might be able to just straight up double leg everybody and just start grinding grind all of them out. There are some people here that he could have problems with, but you can match him up where he could just go all the way to Jared Cannonier and then he's got a title shot. Then he's fighting Izzy and Alex Pereira, who both have terrible wrestling. I mean, middleweight, it's one of those situations where are there people there who can make him pay for some of his inadequacies. Maybe Robert Whitaker can, but he could get a title shot by avoiding him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want you want to you want to strategically match him up because he might be able to beat Izzy easier than he's able to beat uh like fuck, even Curtis. Curtis is tough, man. He's good and he, he's not easy to take down. Or like a Jack Hermanson, Marvin Vittori, he might be able to beat Izzy easier than some of those guys. Right? Some of those guys who pose more of a threat in the the submission grappling world, um, but yeah, those those fights seem like they'd be fun matchups, right, right off the bat. And one thing that that maybe that more wrestling centric stance tells me is that they want to keep this a, a good young talent in his wheelhouse. Right? There's no reason for him to start thinking he needs to start bombing on everybody if that's not his core competency. Let's keep him where he's strong and then be able to to strike off of uh, dead-end wrestling sequences so you don't wear yourself out. You know? While those guys are pulling you up with a wizard and trying to get a far side underhook and bump up and pull, they're pulling you into a good knee situation, especially if you're the one pushing the action and their back is against the cage. So learning how to do some of that grimy Muay Thai stuff. I, mean, I don't know what you call it. They, I call it dirty Muay Thai. If we're going to call it dirty boxing against the cage, some of that dirty Muay Thai from an over-under position and really driving that head up under that jaw, throwing some knees, getting good in those positions. But I think he's a quick – I think Bo Nickel is a quick study. I think he is motivated to, to continue to learn fighting while developing – and while developing, staying true to his wrestling without being, without being boring. I think he's got the goods, and I think he's going to continue to develop, and I'm really eager to see it. The theme for UFC 285 seems to be poor pay means athletic big men go to other sports, which makes the few good big guys stand out. But please, don't gaslight us into believing the worst divisions produce the GOATs. You just, you just can't. When you say pound for pound, that means when you take a 125-pound fighter or a 145-pounder in Volkanovski and turn him in to a, like a bigger version of himself against a heavyweight, who would win? Right? Pound for pound. That's how I see it. And there's no doubt that Volkanovski beats some of these guys as our as our greatest pound for pound or as pound for pound so you need to at least suspend disbelief it's not 145 pounder fighting a heavyweight if you take that heavyweight and shrink him down to 145 pounds how's it going to play out right you don't get to keep the height you don't get to keep the reach if you're shrinking someone down so whenever trying to make these decisions these folks have to start to look more technically 
right? And with that technical uh, acumen comes development of that technical acumen. And the greater the depth of that division, the more on your shit you have to be. And the more on your shit you are, the greater prepared you are, camp after camp after camp. That's what's truly producing our goats. Not saying uh, that's such a shitty division, I don't even have to train for it. Right? <laughs> so maybe we start rethinking that. Maybe we start rethinking that calculus just a fucking bit. Still, I like to see the heavyweights banging, but hey, man, let's, uh, let's rethink things just a little bit. Yeah. Otherwise, like you would be calling the best middle school basketball player goat for basketball, right? Right. Like, you have to think about the depth of their league, their division. Without a doubt. All right. That's it for this fight study. If you like this episode and like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. You'll find lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. We also have Fighters Brew, which is a manga-inspired martial arts audio series, as well as the Fighters Brew transcripts that include martial arts tutorials. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online, along with Fighters Brew on Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening. It's always a pleasure.